how he recovered from being a homeless 24-year-old heroin addict, the two areas to attack when it comes to behavior change, how to build self-awareness, how to find the balance between discipline and self-compassion, how to be more responsive rather than reactive, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 197 with host of the One You Feed podcast, Eric Zimmer. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm here because you want to be the best version of yourself, but there are so many things that you need to do to get there. Because it's overwhelmingly complicated, it's easy to lose focus, easy to lose a sense of direction, which is why so many people end up being less than who they could be. That's why I create videos, podcasts, and fitness programs to keep you on track to your best you. Go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. Today, I bring you behavior coach, author, and host of the award-winning The One You Feed podcast, Eric Zimmer. Eric is endlessly inspired by the quest for a greater understanding of how our minds work and how to intentionally create the lives we want to live. We talk about how we gain and build self-awareness by spending time in our discomfort, how to become more self-compassionate, and how to respond instead of react. Y'all, this episode is next level good. I feel like Eric and I really connected and are bringing you such an inspiring and practical episode. As you're listening to the show, make sure you tag me at carrier underscore best you and tag at one underscore you underscore feed to let us know that you're listening. Monday mornings can be the bane of your existence, I know. It can seem impossible to get motivated on a Monday morning, but not if you receive my Monday Motivation Trio 111 newsletter. Every Monday, I send out one motivational quote, one inspiring video, and one workout to get your week started with a bang. Just go to nickcarrier.com slash 111-newsletter to get this in your inbox every Monday morning. Again, it's nickcarrier.com slash 111-newsletter. Without further ado, here's to getting closer to your best you with the inspiring Eric Zimmer. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super pumped today to have the one and only Eric Zimmer on the show. Just want to start by saying, Eric, appreciate you spending the time with me today. Thanks, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, of course. So uh, Eric is a behavior coach and author and the host of the award-winning The One You Feed podcast. And I was listening to your podcast uh, a little bit last week and a little bit this week. So I'm really interested in the different topics that you address because I feel like we have like similar end goals, but we, in terms of the podcast and the message that we want to get out, but definitely attack it from a little bit different angles. So I'm really excited to talk about your story, some of the lessons that you've learned from the hundreds of amazing guests that you've had on your podcast. Talk a little bit about your TED Talk and then really excited to talk about your spiritual habits coaching platform and, and diving into some of that stuff. But that way I want to start and give everybody a little bit of context and give me a little bit more context is with your story. So back at 24 years old, you were homeless and you were a heroin addict and you were working as a cook. And then one day some cops came in and put handcuffs on you. And basically, I want you to tell us what happened next there and, and kind of pick up the story where I leave it off. Yeah, well, you you laid out a fair amount of it there. I was 24. I was a homeless heroin addict and was working in a kitchen. And I, you know, I saw the police come in the front door. And well, that's probably not a good sign. And they just kept walking down the kitchen, you know, walking through the restaurant, right into the kitchen, walked right in, handcuffed me, took me away. And uh, I was charged with multiple felonies for a variety of different crimes, grand theft, forgery, other things. And turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me because that led me into 
recovery. And so from there, I went into a long-term treatment center. I was very fortunate in that I was afforded a chance to get treatment and get better instead of going to jail, which a lot of people are not afforded that opportunity. So I'm, I am uh, very grateful that I was. And um, sort of launched me on my recovery journey. And I got sober from that. And kind of, you know, it's been, a, that was a long time ago, it was 25 years ago. So there's a lot of story between there and here. But that, yeah. that launched me on my on my recovery journey. That was the last time I ever used. So okay, gotcha, for sure. So I want to kind of now back it up even a little bit further to to prior to 24. What do you what do you think? Because I think a lot of people, you know, out there suffer from a, a number of different things that could lead them to going down a bad path. What are what are some of the things that you think maybe led you to going down this bad path earlier prior to 24? Yeah, I you know there, that's a really good question that I don't think anybody has complete answers for why do some of us become alcoholics or addicts and others don't right my the particular nature of my path started like a lot of people i started um drinking and maybe smoking a little bit of pot and and right away though it, it i had a very uh i felt like i had a very special relationship with it like it was very important to me right away and i did it a lot and well before i ever got on heroin you certainly would have said oh, that guy's got a problem with alcohol or that guy smokes too much pot right the circumstances of my life being a musician and the people i ran with and all that led me to heroin right and then once I was on heroin, particularly back in those days. I don't know what it's like today. I think it's a little bit different, but back in those days, it wasn't as widespread. It was it was was more expensive back then. So all of a sudden, that led to a certain crowd of people. That led to a certain amount of money that I needed to get every day in order to you know to get my drugs. So so how I got to heroin is a little bit less of an interesting question, just because it sort of is like who I was around and the circumstances that I was in. What made me prime to be an alcoholic or an addict in general? That's probably perhaps a more interesting question. And I think, you know, some of the things we know about addiction is that adverse childhood effects, um, experiences have a big effect. So the more things that happen to you as a child, the more likely you are to be an addict. But I didn't have a terrible childhood, certainly by by a lot of measures, but I, I had a childhood certainly where I think my parents were divorced. They were they both suffered from depression. They weren't real present. I don't think they I don't think they knew how to parent me. I was sort of an unusual, highly sensitive child. So I mean, I think they did the best they could. But I think by the time I hit a certain age, I I had a I had a number of those adverse childhood experiences, and I think by and large, I just didn't know how to cope with the feelings that I was having. I just had no emotional vocabulary or no way to deal with the, experience, the the feelings I was experiencing. And so alcohol and drugs just immediately really worked well for me. Like they helped me a lot. For years, they were a really good solution to me. Right. Um, and then there's probably some genetics. We know genetics has something to do with it mixed in there a little bit too. So I think it's a lot of different things. I think the great news, at least in my case, about addiction was I didn't have to figure out all the whys in order to get better, thankfully, because yeah, I don't yeah. think we ever fully know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And this question is a little bit hard to answer because it's not the way, it, this isn't the way that it actually happened. But I think it's a useful question because of people who are maybe close to addiction or have addiction or other people who 
have loved ones or friends and family in their life who have this sort of thing. Do you think there is anything that maybe anybody else could have done prior to the point where, you know, you, you hit rock bottom, if you will? I know, I know you don't, you don't necessarily believe in a bottom because there's always, you can go lower, but is there anything anybody could have done prior to hitting rock bottom that maybe could have turned things around for you? That is a really good question. Once upon a time, I think the answer I would have given is no, but I'm not sure that's true, but I don't know what it is. You know, you, you mentioned that I don't necessarily believe in the idea of a bottom. I, I think bottom's an interesting term because, I mean, I've got friends uh, they're not, well, they're not, I guess they're not friends anymore because they're not alive. People who died, that was their bottom. You know, they hit bottoms that most of us would find incomprehensible and they kept going. Hmm. So bottom's not enough, right? Yeah, I do think consequences matter, right? Consequences, I think there's a combination of when the consequences of the addiction become problematic and there is a good solution that is provided and hope is provided at the same time. I think you need those two things. Just a bottom just leads to increasing despair, I think. So for me, the bottom happened at a time that I was given a lot of hope and a lot of opportunity and a lot of support. So had I seen opportunity earlier, perhaps in different ways, maybe something might have worked. You know, I think had somebody been able to change my my experiences enough. Like, you know, I think back to like, you know, a few years before that, like, what if I had gotten to go do like a, an outward bound thing and I spent three months in the wilderness? Might that have changed it? Yeah, it might have. I don't know. You know, but I would say it, it's, I had to, I had to be at a point where I was done, you know, where I had to sort of see that alcohol and drugs just weren't working real well for me anymore. Cause that's the other thing. The first several years, no, I don't think there's anything anybody could have done because they, I thought they were, I thought drugs and alcohol were awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was real happy with what they were doing in my life. The later years. Yeah. I started to experience consequences and there may have been off ramps before that, but I don't know what they, what they would have been, you know, necessarily. Yeah. No, I like how you laid that out, though. I like the the pairing of the consequence, but then also like a little feeling of hope or like there's a, there's a, another way out of this potentially. And so I think that that kind of recipe sometimes for some people ends up the consequence ends up being a lot bigger than for other people. But just having that other component in there is really big. So kind of where I want to go from here. And if you don't actually want this in the podcast, you can feel free to take it out. But I, I was, I love how you start your podcast with reading the parable, and I'm, I was fascinated by hearing other people's answers to it and, and how they approached it. And so I wanted to read out the parable for you and ask you the same question, and that way everybody can kind of get a feel for your, for your podcast and entice them to go listen as well. So the parable reads like this: A grandfather is talking with his grandson. The grandfather says, "In life, there are two wolves inside of us, which are always at battle." One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, bravery, and love. The other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed, hatred, and fear. The grandson stops and thinks about it for a second, and he looks up at his grandfather and says, Grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather replies, the one you feed. And so basically, you ask everybody, how does this currently apply in your work and in your life right now? So the same question goes for you. Ah, you've done a good job. You've even got my version of the parable, which is pretty much the same as it is. I just modify it a little bit. I think 
you know, I think the reason it's such a powerful story, like any sort of parable, is that you hear it and immediately you understand it. It conveys a lot of wisdom. So on one hand, I think we all hear it and we go, oh, I get it, right? And I think it's that our choices matter. You know, what we think about matters, what we do matters. These things have consequence. And, and I think that's the, the, the basic piece. I think, you know, on, on further reflection, I like it for a couple of other reasons in addition. One is I love that the, the grandfather sort of lays it out as like, this is going on inside all of us. We all have these, you know, we have these desires to do good and these desires to do bad, or we, we have greed and we have love. I mean, we've got all these things inside of us. And so I like that because I think it normalizes what it means to be human. And a lot of us feel bad that we struggle with any of this stuff. We feel like, oh, it should just be easy. I should just always be a certain way. I should always be good. I should always be kind. I should always be motivated. I should always want to eat my broccoli. I should, right? And the reality is we just don't. So I love the parable because I think it normalizes that. It says everybody has this going on inside of them. And the way the parable is presented, it sort of sounds like it's kind of a close match even. You know, it's like it could yeah. go either way, which I think is really also useful because it goes, this stuff never goes away. And then I also love that it doesn't really talk about chaining up the bad wolf or putting the bad wolf in a cage or beating him or starving him or anything. It just says, look, give more of your attention to the positive things. And I think that's a useful strategy for how to deal with ourselves. I, I don't think it really works to try and squash the parts of ourselves that we don't like or these impulses. And and we, you know, I don't love the idea of, you know, even the characterization all the time of it as a bad wolf, because some of the things that come up in us, they're not necessarily bad. They're normal human emotions, right? Anger and 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 fear and all those things. They've got a place and a role. But I like it for that reason because it really does focus on like, hey, let's Let's focus on the positive aspects. Let's feed the good parts of ourselves and watch those grow. Yeah, there's so much in there that I love that you said. Um, it does. It simplifies so many different things in our life. Like you said, um, not we, we don't always want to eat broccoli. We're not always motivated. We don't always want to hop right out of bed. And then I really like how you talked about it's not necessarily that you need to lock the bad wolf in a cage. Like there, there, there is usefulness and accepting that it's there, but finding a way to not put as much energy towards that bad wolf and prioritize putting energy towards the good wolf. Is there, what, when was the time that this parable got in front of you and why did it mean so much to you at the time? Yeah, the first time I heard it, I, you know, I don't remember exactly, but it would have been somewhere in Columbus, Ohio in probably 1995 in some sort of 12-step meeting somewhere. Mm. And yeah, at that moment, it boy, it, it hit me because I think I was faced really clearly in those moments with that choice in a really big way. And, and I was presented early in recovery with these very clear ideas. Like if you want to get sober, here's the things you do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do that, right? And so it was real clear to me. Like if I want to get better, here's the things that I need to put my energy and time into. And at that time, you know, I, I sometimes jokingly say I wasn't feeding the bad wolf then. I mean, I think at that point, the bad wolf was eating me. Like, the, you know, <laughs> he was pretty big and strong at that point, right? Yeah. And so it just really meant a lot to me. But it just, it, it, was, it was really clear to me that I had been feeding the bad wolf for a long time. Mm. And that, 
you know, it was time to feed the good wolf. And I was luckily presented with a, with a bunch of things that I could do that would help me get sober. And so that parable really meant a lot to me. And then, you know, 20 some years later, I chose it for the, the basic jumping off point for the podcast. And so in all those years, it somehow still resonated with me. You know, it's still, I, I always liked it as a, as an idea. Yeah, definitely. I love that. I uh, love the significance that it has to you. So as I talked about earlier, um, we'll get into the spiritual habits coaching platform because I'm fascinated to talk about that, but it's kind of a combination of spiritual principles and behavioral principles. And your TED talk is more around behavioral principles called the battle of changing your behavior. And I absolutely loved it. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by studying and have kind of looked at over the past few years is this kind of phenomenon that uh, in a lot of areas of life, we know what we should be doing, but we're not doing it for whatever reason. Like people know they should exercise, but they don't. They know they should eat healthy, but they don't. And I'm a I'm a fitness trainer, so I see this all the time. And so I've I've really explored and and dove into this question. So, I, but I want to kind of pose it to you. What do you think causes this gap for people between knowing what to do and and doing what they know? Yeah, I think there's. There's two, if I had to break the problem down into two main areas, I would break it down like this. And, I, and I've done, you know, I've been doing behavioral coaching with people now for, I don't know, maybe four years. And, and then I sponsored people in recovery for years and years before that. And so a lot of experience working with people. And so I've sort of kind of deconstructed it in my mind this way. And I think there's two elements. When I work with people on behavior change, which is essentially like, I want to be doing something and I'm not doing it, or I'm doing something and I don't want to be doing it. I look at two main areas. The first is really tactical. And it's things like, do you have a clear plan? You know, do you know what you're going to do? Is it clear to you? Is it broken down into small enough steps? Do you know when you're going to do it? Do you have the ability to do it? Are you structuring your environment to help you do it? Do you have accountability, support? Do you have tracking? This is a lot of the stuff that people like James Clear, BJ Fogg, a lot of the newer behavior science folks talk a lot about this element of it. And it's a really critical, important element. And I find that it solves a lot of problems if we can get those things done. Start small, right? That's another big one. Start at a level you're able to get, get proper reminders, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then the second element of it is more what I would call emotional regulation. And I would define emotional regulation as the ability to work with our emotions skillfully enough that we can then act according to what we value. And so that's the second failure that I often see. So, so if I was to sort of give an example, I might work with somebody and we would say, okay, you want to, uh, let's say you want to be a writer and we finally break it down. You're going to start by writing for 20 minutes a day. You're going to do it Monday mornings at 9am and we've cleared your schedule and we've got everything arranged. It's simple. Monday morning at 9am comes and you think about writing and you instead pick up your phone and get on Facebook for an hour. That's not a failure of planning or systems or anything else. That's a failure of emotional regulation. Something came up inside you at that moment. And you, before you knew it, were on Facebook. And it's usually that what we're about to do is causing some level of discomfort in us. But we often don't, we don't know that really. We just go, well, I'm on Facebook. What the heck happened, right? So one of the things we can do is sort of zoom into that moment 
and really examine what's happening there. And, and what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What's the internal conversation I'm having with myself, right? Mm. This is the moment where we can get in and, and maybe go, well, I don't really feel like writing. Yeah, okay, but I've just I've decided that being that I want to write and it's important to me and I know I'll feel better if I write and you know here we can get into motivation but we have to make that process that that I call it a choice point or at a choice point we've got to zoom into that choice point closely enough to know what's happening so I think it's a combination of we don't have good systems we don't have good planning we don't have good skills we overwhelm ourselves with trying to do too much too often too soon and then the second is we have to work on the failure of emotional regulation, the ability to go, I don't feel like it, I'm scared, I'm frightened, uh, I whatever, and, and work with those emotions, not to repress them and make them go away, but just work with them skillfully enough that we can go, okay, I'm afraid, but I'm going to write anyway. Boom, here I go. Yeah. Now, I really like how you separate it into those two, and I think that's very accurate. And I think you had him on your podcast too, Near Ayal, the author of indistractable. And he talks about kind of the, well, he talks about obviously both of those two different things, but the emotional regulation part, he talks about how so many of our decisions or all of our decisions come from a place of discomfort. And there's these internal triggers of maybe I'm bored, I'm scared, whatever that causes us to do these certain behaviors. What, what do you think are the right ways for somebody to go about without somebody else helping them. Like, okay, I'm distracted. I pulled up Facebook. Why did I do that? What can they do to like start navigating through the why did I do that and start switching that behavior? Yeah, yeah. And I don't fully agree with with Nier on all those points. He talks right. about every motivation in life comes down to a desire to avoid pain, that none of it's driven by wanting pleasure or good things. And I, I I don't know that I agree with that. Mm -hmm. It's not that important, actually, at the end of the day. But I think what we have to do is we have to stay a little bit longer with the discomfort. So I'm going to sit down to write. I start feeling uncomfortable. And before I know it, I'm on Facebook, right? It tends to happen like that. What we have to do is, is put the Facebook off a little bit longer. And we have to stop and go, okay. I'm supposed to be writing, but I don't want to write. What's happening? And really, it's just what am I feeling and what am I thinking? And this is, this is where learning to be a little bit more self-aware is kind of the name of the game in so many areas. Because if we can start to recognize what we're thinking and feeling, we can start to try and find ways to work with it more skillfully. So that's really the first thing is that we have to slow the process down because again, the process, I, when I start working with coaching clients, what I often will find with them is that they don't even really even see it happening. You know, I'm like, well, how much did you debate whether to write? And they're like, well, I didn't really. Okay. So now let's, let's extend the, let's open the debate up a little bit. Let's put off Facebook a little bit longer, even if you just, if for five minutes, don't do it. Sit there for five minutes and try and make yourself right and observe what comes up. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Oh, well, when I think about writing what I, you know, and we'll find often it's like, I'm not going to be any good at it. Or 
it's not even going to matter if I do it anyway, because I'm a terrible writer. Or, yeah, I might write today, but every time I've tried to write in the past, I've given up after three days. Why will now be any different? I mean, there's, there could be all kinds of stuff. It could just be, I'm really tired. I didn't get enough sleep last night. I'm really tired. Okay, well then, our solution there, we can, we, you know, depending on what it is that's stopping us, our solutions might be different. So I'm always asking a client, if you didn't do something, why? You know, not like, why didn't you do it, you idiot, which is the way we normally talk to ourselves, but a very genuine and curious, why? What happened? You know, mm-hmm. and you'll, you'll find things like, oh, well, I got up and I was getting ready to get on the exercise bike and my kid came downstairs and he had a fever. I had to take him to the doctor. Okay. Well, what are you going to do? Nothing. It happens. Right. On the other hand, it could be, oh, my kid came downstairs and was like, Hey mom, remember we're supposed to go here. And we go, okay, well, you've got a problem with planning. You know, on the other hand, it could be, you know, exactly what we talked about. I was sitting there alone in my room and before I knew it, I got on Facebook or I was really tired or so, but it really comes from being self-aware and just asking ourselves, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? And let whatever is there come up and be there. We're, you know, to go back to the wolf parable, right? We're often very, we don't, it's almost hard to look at the bad wolf because we're embarrassed by it. We're embarrassed mm. by, you know, like you might see this with people who are out, you know, I see this with people who are trying to exercise and they start trying to exercise and they go to the gym and they see themselves in the mirror and they're like, I'm disgusting. Okay. That will stop you from wanting to, we've got to work with that. We got to work with that thought and feeling. If we just keep trying to avoid it or pretend it's not there, we're going to keep getting stuck. So we have to let whatever it is be there and, and give it space and find a way to work with it. Yeah. There's a few things that I absolutely love there and, and want to try to highlight and go back on. The first thing that you talked about, self-awareness. I do believe that self-awareness is one of the biggest skills and things that you need to work on and develop in order to get closer to the best version of yourself. So I really love how you stress the importance of that. And a lot of people mention the importance of that, but very few times do you hear kind of practical advice on how can I become more self-aware? And I think what you did, what you talked about, how when you make the decision not to do something, try to spend time in that discomfort. Right. Try to be open with yourself and ask yourself, okay, what's really happening right here? Rather than just like being like, I'm not going to do it. So I think that was, I think that was key. And I'm, that's definitely something that I'm going to try to do more often myself. Spend time there, ask yourself, be willing to ask yourself what the heck just went, hap- just, just went on. And then the other thing that you mentioned is how a lot of times we're just like super critical of ourselves, like, oh, why didn't you do that particular thing? And I talk a lot about following through with your commitments. And one of my followers or whatever asked me, I really would love to hear your input on the balance between following through and staying disciplined, but also how to kind of be easy on yourself and and move on. And so literally I posted an Instagram story yesterday because I journaled about it because I was like, that's a good point. I need to like think more about that and journal about it. And I said that when we, when you don't do something, you need to come from a place of curiosity rather than criticism. And I felt like that's, that's exactly what you were talking about. Um, you got to be willing to be, because that's the only way you can come up with why you actually didn't do it. And you can come up with a different plan to make an adjustment the next time. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, more and more, I have become convinced that a key skill 
is self-compassion, right? And mm-hmm. it's a it's a term that's getting a lot more currency. Kristen Neff out of the University of Texas does a lot of research on it. And I like her research because her research shows that self-compassion is not just a nice sounding idea. And it's not just a way to feel better about yourself, which is great. Good. Feeling better about yourself is a good thing, but it's actually more effective. And if we stop and think about the way the brain works, we'll see why this is true. Because what we know is that when we are really critical of ourselves, we are in essence stressing ourselves out, right? And as we stress ourselves out, we are triggering the parts of our brain that are more involved in flight and fight and freeze and all that stuff. And those are the parts of the brain that are not so much our prefrontal cortex, which means that as we are more stressed, as we are more critical, as we are more judgmental, we're actually less capable of learning. And learning is exactly Mm. what we have to be able to do. If If we're stuck and we can't make a change, learning is what we need. A lot of people are referring to go all the way back to where we started. A lot of people these days, researchers are starting to refer to addiction as a learning disorder. And the learning disorder is that for whatever reason, we get it in our mind that, it, that this substance is a positive thing. And then even as that changes and it goes from being a positive thing to a really bad thing, we're not able to learn that. And I think that one of the ways that addicts most get themselves stuck and they can't learn is the shame that comes from addiction. And so the shame that comes from addiction, I actually think blocks our ability to learn from it. And it's the same thing with, you know, right outside of like addiction, the thing that is often closest to people that causes the most shame are things like inability to control eating, inability to exercise, body weight, all that stuff causes a lot of shame. And shame, I really think blocks learning. So we've got to find some way to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and curious. And I love what you said, curiosity versus criticism. I I think you just said what I said in like 40 sentences in one sentence, right? Which is really good because that's the key. It's not, and, and I always find that with people. How do we balance being too hard on ourselves or too easy on ourselves? Right. Mm -hmm. We can't just be like, well, whatever. I'm a, I'm a drug addict and I just keep using heroin. Oh, well, who cares? Big deal. That's not, that's not, (laughs) that doesn't work. Accountability is important, but I'm a piece of, you know what, and I'm awful and I'm this terrible person doesn't work either. We've got to migrate ourselves sort of back to a place of curiosity. What is happening here? Mm-hmm. And and kindness allow you know kindness also allows us to remain more curious you know it's sort of interesting if you look at humor humor is a really interesting thing because it's used a lot in twelve step programs people laugh a lot and I, you know I thought well that's nice but I've really realized that the laughter s- allows us to suspend judgment and people are actually better able to learn because they're laughing about the things that sound terrible but we're sort of laughing it it suspends that critical judgment. And allows us to be a little bit kinder and, and to learn a little bit better. Yeah, no, I really think that's a that's a key thing that you hit on. That when we're being critical to ourselves or we have shame, that our brain literally is not as open to learning. And that I think that everybody can relate to to that because they just I feel like it just blocks off 
your openness to to be to be curious and stuff like that. Totally. And it and it drives you right into Facebook and other things because that really judgmental self-criticism feels so bad mm. that our psychological defense mechanisms kick in and we're just gone. You know, right. we're just off in whatever way we can distract. So yeah, kindness and curiosity is really important. And I think that the the, the, the piece that comes out of that is that we start to realize that our inability to do some of these things that we want to do really can be learned. You know, it, it's one of the most important things I think that I talk with coaching clients about is, or people that want to be clients, like I often say, it's not you, it's your approach, right? Amen. It means that you can learn, you can change, you can learn and change. Even if you haven't up till now, it's not because you're fundamentally broken or flawed, right? It just means that you just don't know how. Right. No, I, I'm 100%. I'd kind of say something similar. I don't think it's as much as just the sheer discipline of the individual because so many people think, oh, I'm just not that disciplined. I don't have that much willpower. It's like it's not as much the discipline of the individual as much as the system of success that you've kind of laid out for yourself. Bingo. Yeah, it's a great way to say it. You got it. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the the spiritual habits coaching. We've talked a little bit about the behavioral stuff. And I think the, the kind of maybe the way to introduce it is ask what got you into it or maybe ask um, what kind of people are, are coming to you and, and needing this kind of coaching. Yeah, it's a great question. It, it sort of merges my, my two long-term sort of interests in the two areas that the podcast seemed to kept diving into, which was on one hand, very much focused on behavior change, on systems, on the science of behavior change, and then also very much focused on spirituality. And by spirituality, I, I'll be clear what I mean by that, because that is such a vague term. I, and particularly with spiritual principles, what I mean, I tend to mean principles that are common to almost all uh, spiritual and religious systems that almost all of us, when we hear them, would go, yes, I agree with that. That's important. Things like the ability to accept situations that we can't change, the ability to be present in the moment, right? To actually be where we are, the ability to be generous, the um, ability to take different perspectives on things, to be able to see things through different perspectives, so those are the spiritual principles, and th that's an example of several of them, right? Right. And then so what I'm doing is I, I sort of start asking myself, like, well, lots of people know these things and believe in them, but are they really helping that much? And I, I started to look at it, and I went, well, the problem really is one of practice. Like, it's great to believe in being present and mindful, but if, you're ne if you never remember to be present or mindful, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good. It's great to believe in accepting what you can't change, but if you never think of that in the moment, well, what good does that do you? Same with self-compassion. Self-compassion is another spiritual principle. It's a great principle, but... And so I started really going, well, the big problem is that we often think about these things. Maybe, maybe we build a meditation practice for ourselves, and that's a really good step. And we do that. So for 20 minutes in the morning, we have this sort of orientation. Then we just go about the rest of our day and we forget about it. And so I went, well, how do we remember to do it more often? How do we weave these things into more of our lives? So I started looking at what I know about behavior change, and I thought, oh, behavior change actually gives me, you said it just a moment ago, the systems of success. 
behavior change points me towards principles and things that we know that work that might allow me to apply these principles more consistently in my life. And so spiritual habits is sort of the merging of that. It's for people who believe in spiritual principles, who maybe are people who are into mindfulness or into different spiritual types of reading, but are feeling like, well, I believe these things, but I just, I feel like I'm not practicing it enough, or I don't feel like it's really working. And so I'm trying to sort of marry those two things together into a program that allows people to practice these spiritual principles more consistently and more often throughout their life. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned a, a number of the different principles that you probably help coach people with. Is there one that you feel like most people are, or there's just the highest number of people coming to you because I want to be better at this? Well, the spiritual habits is actually a, it's not, it's not coaching in the sense we think of coaching where people come and go, well, I want to do this. It's actually a program I have that I've created that okay. walks people through. There are really um, seven principles that I, that I work with. That said, I would say the principle that most people want, the thing that most people would like to be better at in life is to learn to be less reactive. It's to learn to respond more skillfully to the situations in our lives. You know, that's probably, if I had to guess the one that most people are, are most after. Yeah, no doubt. That's definitely, that's probably the skill that I have probably worked on and developed, tried to develop one of the most over the past few years. And definitely I found myself improving upon for sure, obviously, I have a lot of work to go, but but definitely something that I found myself not being very good at a number of years ago, and have have worked to improve on it. And so, I don't want to give away your entire program, but what what are maybe a couple things that people can do? Because if people are going to hear that, and they're like, "Yeah, I am reactive for sure. I wish I could take the time to respond rather than react." What are, what's something that I could do to be able to to improve there? I'll, I'll answer that. I'm curious what you did. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think honestly, I was on, I've always been somebody who's on the go so much and just always want to take action, action, action. And I think it's been a combination of reading more because I think that puts me in a more calm state more than anything else. And then also breathing exercises in silence. Yeah. Taking, taking some deep breaths and and I would say the last part is just like an over uh, the quality of gaining curiosity with myself. I don't. I think that I've gotten much more curious over the past few years. So now, rather than hearing something somebody says and immediately bringing my opinion to it, I am more curious as to why that just came out of somebody's mouth. Yeah, and kind of coming from that spot of curiosity rather than like boom. I think I think those are all right on. I do think that time in silence and breathing helps. Um, you know, I think it starts with, we've talked about self-awareness, right? I think it starts with realizing I'm about to react, mm -hmm. you know? And the way that we often do this is we have to, we have to think about what are the situations that I often react negatively in? And sometimes they're, we, we can identify them. They're like, Oh, it's when Bob at work says something to me, you know, or it's when my girlfriend says X, Y, or Z, or it's when um, 
I'm in the car and traffic comes. So if we can identify when, that's a that's a good that's a good thing. So we can sort of keep saying to ourselves, like, okay, when X situation happens, I'm going to pause. You know, there's a there's a there's a quote that was uh, I originally read about it in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People a long time ago, but it's I see the quote everywhere again now these days, and it's it's from Viktor Frankl who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, and it's you know uh, between stimulus and response there is a space, and in that space lies all our human freedoms, right? And that's really the whole game. There's the stimulus that hits us, and then there's the response. So if we can start to just see that. And meditation is a good way of training, you know, us to give that. That's what I think meditation does for me more than anything else. It just gives me a little bit more space between stimulus and response. But it can be really helpful to know where are the places that I need it and prep ourselves, you know, oh, here comes Bob again, <laughs> right? He's walking across the office. Let, I, I might react, so I'm going to try and do better. Or, oh, I'm coming home from work. And I'm walking in the door and the kids are all going to run up. And I know a lot of times that triggers me. So I'm going to prep ahead of time and plan that I'm going to try and have a little space. And then self-awareness, like what is it I'm feeling in that moment? What's going on? And I like what you said, curiosity. Why is this person saying this? Yeah. And then the other is what you just described there is why is this person saying this? What this what that is, is an example of being able to take different perspectives. And taking different perspectives is the key to being able to react more because what we want is to be able to react flexibly. We want to be able to respond, right? And the way that we are able to often do that is we have to start to see the situation from different angles. And so if there's another quote from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People that I love, and I don't know if it comes from Stephen Covey, but it's, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are, right? And so if we really see this to be true, and it is 100% true, right, then it's like, what are different ways I can see the world? You know, one of my favorite ones, this is just a very simple perspective taking, but helps me all the time is, will this matter in five hours, five days, five weeks, five months? Used to save me all the time in traffic. I'd start to get angry. I mean, will this matter in five hours? I'd be like, no, it won't matter in five hours. I won't remember it at all. So why am I getting so bent out of shape? That's a type of perspective. The more different types of perspective that we know how to take, I think of them as like glasses. You know, It's good to have glasses that allow you to see things that are far away. It's good to have glasses that allow you to see things up close, glasses that block the sun. Perspectives are like glasses. The more of them I have and the more perspective questions I can sort of ask myself, like you said, why might this person be saying this? is a really good question because all of a sudden now I'm curious, I'm thinking. And if I'm thinking, you know, again, to, this is neuroscientists hate this sort of brain oversimplification. But if I'm thinking, why might this person be saying this? I'm up here in my prefrontal cortex and I'm more engaged in thinking versus reacting, which tends to be more of a limbic system thing, right? So the very act or the act of labeling, before I say anything, I want to know what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Oh, I'm feeling X, I'm feeling Y, I'm feeling Z. Same thing. That act of labeling what we're feeling, giving it a name, is engaging more of our thought processes and less of our reaction processes. Mm -hmm. So those are those. that's a couple of different answers. 
Yeah, no, I love that. And I love the quotes from Seven Habits, love the quote from Man Search for Meaning. Because um, I, I've read the same quote, and I remember a couple of years ago talking to somebody more about the quote in, in greater depth. But the gap between stimulus and, and response is where all our freedoms lie and where all our power is. That is so big to to be able to realize that. And I like how you brought in the the glasses thing, because I don't know if you've watched any of probably have but watch some of Zig Ziglar's work and he talked a lot about how all I'm doing is giving you a different pair of glasses so you can kind of see the world differently and and have different perspectives because I think that having that different perspective is one of those key things for sure to be able to be less reactive and be able to respond yep and I think you know sort of tying all this back to behavior change right when we talk about behavior change one of the things we talk a lot about are triggers And a trigger is a prompt or a reminder. They work both positively and negatively in our lives, right? The simplest example of a a trigger would be like, I'm going to exercise at 3 p.m. and I have an alarm that goes off on my phone at 3 p.m. and tells me, time-based reminder. Very straightforward, right? But a really powerful type of trigger is an emotional-based trigger. They're really hard to develop, and they almost always work for us in the wrong direction right? It's like, I get stressed, so I eat. I get stressed, so I drink, right? But we've, we've created the trigger happens and an event occurs, right? But if we can start to develop emotional-based triggers in the other way, in that if we can start to recognize them, oh, I'm stressed. Okay, well, now then I think about what, I, what do I want to do instead? Okay, when I'm stressed, I will stop and, you know, take 10 deep breaths, right? That whole count to 10 when you're angry thing makes a lot of sense, right? It's just an old-fashioned homespun wisdom of, you know, increase the space between stimulus and response. That's all, you know, your grandma used to say, count to 10 when you get angry, right? That's all it was. It was your grandma's way of saying increase the space between stimulus and response. So if we can use emotional-based triggers, if we can develop those, those are the most powerful kind of all because they are, oh, you know, here it is. Something's happening in me. How do I want to respond? Yeah. No, I think uh, I think that's awesome. And I've heard that I heard that a while back, and hadn't really revisited it in a long time. But I remember thinking that, and I don't know if this directly relates, but one of the things I do is I, I write like a to do list every single day. And when there's still open boxes towards the end of the day, I have that emotional like crap. There's still open boxes, sort of thing, and. Not that it really fills me with stress, but it almost is like because I'm stressed, it's leading me to continue to work and like finish off the day strong rather than go grab a drink or something like that. Is there anything that in your life right now where you feel like you've created a emotional trigger that works for you in a positive manner? The one that I've probably been working with the most lately, as I mentioned, you know, dealing with depression. Depression is something I've I've dealt with, and what I've started to be be better at doing is catching, like, oh, I'm feeling depressed, and actually stopping and reframing that a little bit, and trying to investigate it a little bit more, because I think what I've started to realize is that oftentimes our you know our thoughts drive our our emotions, right? We, we're all pretty aware of this. I think about something, I get angry, right? But, but it, it works the other way too. Our moods can influence our thoughts. And, and what I've realized for me is that fatigue or tiredness 
looks a lot like depression, feels a lot like depression. And all of a sudden, I'll start generating depressive thoughts out of it. And so what I've gotten better at doing, what I've been working on recently is catching that. And before I start it spinning off into, oh, I'm depressed or this or that, or I'll notice, you know, I'll be a little bit more negative. I'll go, oh, I'm noticing this feeling. It's sort of this feeling of heaviness in my body. And I'll go, oh, I wonder if I'm tired. And that's a really different reframing than I'm depressed. Because then I just go, oh, I'm tired. Well, of course I'm tired. Yeah, all right. Maybe I'll lay down for 20 minutes, right? It's, a, it's, it's an example of that. Um, I think the other, you know, my other types of, uh, I've, de- I've developed a series of them around depression. You know, I, another big one for me, that, similar to that is just, oh, I'm noticing I'm feeling a little bit depressed. And my response will be to move my body. Hmm. You know, if I could only have one thing that would deal with all my mental health issues in the world, it would be exercise. I would just take that, give me that one thing. You know, if I had to give them all up, there's lots of good ones, but that's the number one one. And so again, I would sort of go, well, all right, go move your body and see how you feel afterwards. And afterwards, I'm usually like, I feel fine. So that's an example of uh, an emotional-based trigger that I've variously interpreted over the years um, yeah. and learned to, you know, because what, what can be really helpful is to sort of create like, uh, they call them implementation intentions. If this, then that. When I feel this, then I will do this. You know, knowing that in advance and deciding that, that helps a lot. Because then it's just when I feel this, I'm going to do this. You don't have to debate it so much. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just love that so much. I think that's going to be super helpful for a lot of people to be able to think about how they can implement those sorts of things into their life. And we could go on and on about this. I've loved this conversation so much, but I want to get down to the uh, last couple questions. So I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself, it's really important to try to gain as much clarity as possible as to what that person looks like and what that person is capable of. And then try to reverse engineer that person and and make that person a reality. And so one of the questions that I find really helpful to ask myself is what I'm getting ready to ask you is, is there a particular skill or piece of knowledge or experience that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? That is a great question. I wish I had thought of that one uh, ahead of time. Let me see. I think... I think it's a skill I have in certain areas and not other areas. And it's really a growth mindset, Mm. right? I think, you know, and a growth mindset is just sort of believing that if you do something, you'll get better at it. Right. Um, And so I think that there are most areas of life I have it. And then there's a couple areas maybe I don't. And I think if I did, I might be a little bit more effective in certain areas. So having a growth mindset you know, I, in mine, it's particularly, I'll just, you know, I guess no sense being sort of beaten around the bush. It would be around writing. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's one area that I struggle with a little bit. I just feel like, you know, it's just not, it just doesn't come as naturally to me. And so I think though, that if I had more of a growth mindset about it, which is if I just do it more, I would get better at it. I would be more inclined to do it. I think that's probably the, the biggest one, unless creating two more hours a day is an option for the best version of myself, in which case I'll take that one. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I've, I've seen a lot, number of Carol Dweck's videos and interviews and stuff like that, but I actually finally read the book and finished it probably a month or two months ago now and loved it and think it's 
probably one of the most important skills and and things that people can work on and develop for sure. Because like you said, there and there's so many different areas of your life that you can try to improve your growth mindset in. Yeah, I think that's the fascinating part of it is that we can have it in some areas and not in others. No doubt. No doubt. And a useful thing to think about. However, I feel like if you intentionally work on building in one, it helps you to try to build it in another. Absolutely. But obviously it's not across the board. Absolutely. Yeah, it it, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so before I ask the last question, uh, Eric, I just want to acknowledge you. I think that all of your work since over the last 25 years or so, since um, being 24-year-old homeless and, and heroin addict, I think it's been so special and so unique to you. And I really like how you have morphed the, your two passions and two things that you've been super curious and inquisitive about with your spiritual principles and your behavioral principles and used it to benefit yourself in your own life and getting closer to the best version of yourself. And now you're using that you have been for a while, but using it to help other people get to the best version of themselves and work through the the things that they're going through and help them be more self-compassionate and more disciplined at the same time. So I think it's been really cool and it's been great having you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. Well, you guys need to make sure you are go listen to his podcast. I mean, you have already heard today how valuable this was. So there's a bunch of great stuff on his as well. So the one you feed podcasts anywhere you can listen to podcasts and uh, their website as well. And then on social media, you can find them on Instagram at one underscore you underscored feed. And then on Twitter at one you feed and Facebook, the number one, the letter U and feed. Uh, but with that, Eric, I want to get to the last question. Again, I think getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey. I think we're always working towards that person. And I also think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different in the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently work on or currently do to get closer to that best Eric Zimmer you could possibly be, what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? I think I would get better at understanding my energy profile. And by energy profile, I just mean what gives me energy, what doesn't give me energy, what causes me to have more energy. Maybe some of it is, you know, I'm I'm significantly older than you. So maybe some of it is just like you just get older and you, you, you know, you just don't quite have the same amount of physical vitality, right? But that would be one. I mean, I think I'm pretty energetic. I think I get a lot done. And I think I'd like to improve that. And maybe everybody would, but that would be one area for me for sure. I would write every day and I don't know. I'm honestly not sure. I, yeah, okay. I would, um, I would, I would more consistently get out in nature. Mm. I would more consistently get out in nature. It's a really valuable thing that I love to do, and I just don't do it quite enough. I could push myself to do that a little bit more often or a little bit more consistently. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, those are three great things, and I really like how you said the first one because it's probably it's maybe been said in a similar way but the way that you said it i think was really profound and i think really something that everybody should should definitely work on and would benefit from working on but that's all we got today eric i really appreciate it thank you so much there you have it i hope you enjoyed this special episode with eric I truly feel like there were so many things in here that y'all should take notes on. I took a ton of notes myself on some practical things that I'm going to start doing, like spending time in my discomfort. This way, I'll be able to tell better what causes me to feel certain ways 
which in turn will cause me to behave certain ways myself and not react and I'll respond more effectively. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member who you think would get something from it and be inspired by it. You never know when an episode that you send someone else might just be the turning point that they need to start making a change in their life. If you liked the show, be sure to leave it a rating and review on iTunes and let me know what you thought. I also post a video episode every single week along with the show notes and you can find this at nickcarrier.com slash podcast. Remember, if you're reactive, find a way to create a bigger space between stimulus and response. Be sure to be more curious with yourself rather than critical. Find a way to spin an emotional trigger in a positive way so that it helps you make a shift in your life. I love what he said in regards to when he's tired, instead of thinking of being depressed, he'll be like, okay, let's just take a nap now, or maybe let's get our body moving. Then when he does those things, it makes him feel better and realize that he's not just depressed. For now, it's time, guys. It's time to take action. Don't let another day go by where you're not focused on becoming your best you. Cast a vision for where you want to go as clearly as you can. Define a few action steps to get closer to that, and then execute. The journey is a constant one. It's a bumpy one, but it's a worthy one. It's the journey closer and closer to your best you. 